you, Pastor. Thank you for everyone for a good weekend. It's trust it's been eye-opening as well as informative as well as challenging. We want to uh, close out tonight looking at the central issue. So if you have your scriptures, I know you probably don't need to turn there because you have this verse already memorized, but it's always good to read it and read the word of God. But that verse is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, okay? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Can everybody hear me? Okay, good, 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 good. Okay, everybody's there. We read these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We ask that you would bless our hearts as we look at this passage. Help us, Lord, to be challenged by it. And help us, Lord, to revisit this in our hearts and minds as far as the actual spiritual truth that is reflected in this passage. We thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you that for that from the fact that you are our su supernatural creator, that we have so many blessings even in our lives today. Lord, we have the air around us. We have the, the life that's in our blood. We have the food that we can eat to sustain us. Lord, you provide us with our daily needs. We have uh, abilities that make us able to have a home, and Lord, that you should be the center of it. Lord, you give us wisdom in how to do things so that, Lord, we can be successful at, at what we do. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to just bask in the fact of your creative greatness that has provided so much for us. And we'll give thee the praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Title is Creation, Evolution. Does it matter? We look at Genesis 1-1, the very first verse, and we find that it is ten words. These ten words have literally shattered Christianity. There are people and definitely the world, then there are also churches that do not believe these ten words or the rest of Genesis 1. Or add to that all the way up to Genesis chapter 11. Even some conservative Christian publications that cater to born-again, Bible-believing ministries, churches. They have charts that give the history of the Old Testament. And they start the charts of the history with Abraham. And just in front of Abraham, almost in parentheses, is creation. Ten words that have shattered the church. It's important to us all, and especially our students, and especially our middle school students up on through college and beyond, because in our secular schools, we're going to be seen, and we have seen, that they are going to be militantly indoctrinated into evolutionism, a.k.a. naturalism. The two go 
together atheistic naturalism and it's a fact and what I'm going to preach in this message will be contrary to what you are taught in our public schools. Answers in Genesis <clears throat> inquired at the time when Promise Keepers, if you remember when Promise Keepers was around, they inquired at them as to what their stand was for their organization. Uh, I'm not sure of the intent what Ken Ham had, but be that as it may, if you're not familiar with Ken Ham, he's uh, got the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. Okay, he's strong on the biblical doctrines of creation and all the biblical doctrines, okay? So he, he inquired at with the Promise Keepers, and the president, Bill McCartney at the time of Promise Keepers, wrote back because Ken wanted to know what their stand was on the six-day creation, on the creation issue out of Genesis. And this is the response that Ken Ham got. He says, you need to know that the ministry of promise keepers takes no stand on issues such as this. In fact, we specially try to avoid such debates. Our efforts are designed to bring men together based on the historically essential doctrines of Orthodox Christianity, as represented in our statement of faith or to focus on things that unite the body of Christ instead of those things which tend to divide us. Since different churches and individual Christians hold varying views about creation, it is one of those things we believe falls under the category of secondary doctrines. Just as we do such things as spiritual gifts, eternal security, the rapture, etc. In short, when it comes to subjects like creation, we believe Christians need to extend grace to each other as summed up in the statement, in essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. We can search high and low from Genesis to Revelation. We can take a, our concordances and we will not find where God has given to us any category called secondary doctrines if it's in God's word it's primary if it's in God's word God has it there for a reason God has written his word to communicate to humanity what humanity needs to know about God and about humanity. And that's what it reveals. And when we come to the Oriental mindset, which is, includes the Greek people as well as the Hebrew people, they have a unique way of, uh, of addressing their communicative skills through language. We have a word order language in English. And the pattern is usually the subject before the verb, the verb, and the rest of the sentence in the direct object. That is the normal English pattern. We do all our endings reflect basically gender and number as far as nouns are concerned. Verbs are usually uh, suffixed that show some sort of future or present or past tense. 
However, when we come to the Oriental languages, they are not word-order languages. Hebrew is not a word-order language. Greek is not a word-order language. Because they have a little tiny difference in the way they communicate. Because when we want to emphasize word in English, we underline it, or put it in italics, or make it bold. When they want to under underline an idea that's important, they put it first, as the first word in the sentence. And maybe the idea is really the object, or the uh, object of the verb, but if it's really an important aspect, they put that object of the, ver of the verb in front of the verb. And then they express the rest of it. And because it's word ending, you can sort out that, oh, that ending means it's a direct object. Oh, that ending means it's a past tense verb. Oh, that ending means it's the subject of the sentence. No matter where those words are in the order of the sentence, you can cipher out what is the object, what is the subject, what is the preposition, what is the object of the preposition, and the whole works. So the basic mindset of how they write is they're putting the first things on their mind first in their thoughts. It's something that's very important as far as the sentence is put as the first word or the first thing in the sentence. When it's ideas of, 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 of importance, they'll talk about them and introduce them in the very first paragraph of their writing. And if it's really important, the first part of the book will be taken up, or the first part of the writing will be taken up with this, and then we'll go on to other issues. When we take this and come to, to, to the scriptures, and come to opening our scriptures as we see them, and we have this idea, we come to the very first verse that is greeted by us as a reader. It says, in the beginning, God. Out of all the things that God thought was important that he put in his word, and there are everything is important, salvation is important. The idea that we're lost in sin is important. The fact that God has provided a redeemer for us is important. But it wasn't important compared to what he put first in his word. Because even though all those other things are very important, they are predicated on Genesis 1. 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That verse establishes God as the ultimate authority over creation. It establishes God as the one who is responsible for all of creation. He also knows the human heart. And the natural tendency of the human heart is eventually at some point in our existence and in our life, we sit down in the quietness of our rooms or in the quietness of a space somewhere where we're alone. We think in terms of, is there a God? Where did all this come from? How did this come to be? Why is there evil in the world? And when we come to Genesis and the beginning 
chapters of Genesis, the ones that the church wants to throw out, the liberals look at and say, ah, that shows that this isn't really anything more than a myth. Those first 11 chapters, guess what? They answer all those worldview questions. So it is important. These five words make up a very important message to humanity. We have to ask ourselves, why do different individual Christians hold varying views about creation? It's because Christian young people go off to secular college ill-prepared in this area and come under the militant evolutionary teachings of professors like one Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett, a typical evolutionist, wrote this. He wrote a book in 1995, and this is what he said back in 1995 in his book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea. That's the title of his book. He said this, Darwin's idea, which is atheistic natural evolution, bearing an unmistakable likeness to a universal acid, eats through just about every traditional concept and leaves in its wake a revolutionized worldview, with most of the old landmarks still recognizable, but transformed in fundamental ways. He goes on with this thought, saying, but hasn't there been a tremendous rebirth of fundamentalist faith in all these creeds? Yes, unfortunately, there has been. And I think that there are no forces on this planet more dangerous to us all than the fanaticisms of fundamentalism. Now, guess what he's directing that at, okay? Fundamentalism, okay? Of all the species, Protestantism, Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, Hindu, and Buddhism, as well as countless other small infractions, is there a conflict between science and religion here? There most certainly is. I know. Now let's pay attention. These are, he's starting to really build his case here. I know the lion is a beautiful but dangerous animal. If you let the lion roam free, it would kill me. Safety demands that it be put in a cage. Safety demands that religions be put in cages too. Save the Baptist? Oh, yes, of course. But not by all means. What's his caveat here? Listen carefully. Not by all means, not if it means tolerating the deliberate misinforming of children about the natural world. Misinforming a child is a terrible Offense. That I agree with. <laughs> that I agree with. The message is clear, however. Those who will not accommodate, who will not temper, who will insist on keeping only the purest and wildest strain of their heritage alive, catch this, we will be obliged 
to cage or disarm, and we will do our best to disable the means they fight for. If you insist on teaching your ch children falsehoods, and here it is, falsehoods that man is not a product of evolutionary natural selection, then you must expect at the very least that those of us who have the freedom of speech will feel free to describe your teachings as the spreading of falsehoods and will attempt to demonstrate this to your children at our earliest convenience. Sounds like what we had in our seminar earlier about how we, Rorty says that we will basically discredit you parents, you fundamentalist parents, in the eyes of your children if they insist on holding to what you have taught them. So our proposition is this. God being the creator as revealed in scripture, or is revealed, is central to the scriptures. God and his creation are tied together not in a pantheistic way because God, the eternal God is outside of the created realm. But God is responsible for creation and creation reflects back to God. This is an important aspect because many misuse Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. They say, oh, creation is a revelation of God. It says there in Romans chapter 1 that the clear things of God are seen, even his eternal power and Godhead, and so that they're without excuse. So creation is another revelation of God. This is what it says. It says the things about God, his eternal power and Godhead, can be seen in creation. That means when you look at creation and see how vast it is, that's the all-powerfulness of God, his omnipotence. When you see how intricately things come together and operate in his creation, you see the intelligence, the omniscience of God. It doesn't reveal how God created. It does not reveal how God put things together. I mean, we can look at the end result of God's creative activities and see what the result of those creative activities. But God has not revealed to us anywhere exactly how did you bring DNA together? How did that chemistry come together? If God met the demands of the so-called atheist, we wouldn't be able to get our Bibles into this church because it would be filled with all kinds of scientific equations that not one of the scientists, even a team of scientists, would even come close to understanding. They would look at those formulas and go, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> So God just simply put it into everyday language I am the great creator, I am the God of the universe, and this is what I've done. And this is how long it took me. Guess what? This wonderful leaf. I spoke it into existence. 
thought it, he spoke it, and there it was. No natural processes involved in this, folks. Not one. Now, it continues in existence after that point under natural circumstances, in the natural process that God designed that plant to operate on, but that's not the origin. Natural processes are not the origin of that plant. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. A well-stated and well-noted scientist around the turn of the last century, 1800s to the 1900s, by the name of Herbert Spencer, said this, and catch this, he said that the natural world can be observed in five scientific categories. Five scientific categories in this order. He said, the categories are this, time, force, action, space, matter. This scientist unwittingly, probably not even all that uh, astute with Genesis, basically and explicitly quoted in a scientific way Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, time, God, force, created, action, space, heavens, matter, earth. Right there. The very first verse of the Bible is a profound scientific expression about the real world. Genesis 1.1 was inscribed many millennia before it was categorized in the late 19th century by this man, Herbert Spencer. Everything that can be said about God's creation, the natural world, is said in this opening verse. It summarizes it all. It categorizes it all. Now, the problem is you either believe it or you don't. There's no wiggle room. You either believe it or you don't. You either believe that God is the force or you not. If you choose not to believe, then you are left with nothing but irrational, impotent chance, impossible randomness, or far-fetched coincidence. See, this idea that God is the creator is central to the scriptures. And it is more than just a secondary issue. We see this in three ways. Firstly, that God created as he revealed is central to scriptural integrity. In other words, it holds all of scripture together. There are over 109 verses throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that state God as creator or maker of all things in heaven or in earth or heaven and in earth. These become meaningless if God is not the dynamic creating cause of all material and immaterial things. From Genesis to Revelation, almost every book 
makes a reference back to God as the creator or the maker of heaven and earth. Jonah told by God to go to Nineveh. Preach the gospel to the Ninevites. Telling them make themselves right with God before he judges you. He doesn't want to do it because he's really, as a Jew, angry with the Ninevites. So he gets on a ship. He goes the opposite way. Guess what? You can't outrun God. He knows our uprisings and our down cities. He knows where we are. He knows our thoughts before we even think them. So Jonah's already lost. He's in the boat. He's gone. Finally, a storm comes up because God's working to get Jonah to do what he's supposed to. The Gentiles on the ship are all upset. They, the, some God must be offended. So they start praying and they start doing what they're supposed to. They start lightening the ship. They lose half their cargo. Not exactly going to make the captain happy. Until finally, long story short, they come to Jonah. It must be your God. And you know what Jonah says to those Gentiles? He says, the God who made heaven and earth is my God. He is the one. You throw me overboard and everything will go back to normal. The Gentiles. That was the message to the Gentiles. Paul did the same thing on Mars Hill. Before he told them anything about Jesus and the resurrection, he says, I want to tell you about the unknown God that you have a monument to. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's the message to the Gentiles. You don't find that message when you see the messages of salvation going to the Jews. The message of salvation going to the Jews is Jesus is the Messiah. Theistic old earth evolution scrambles these verses. They completely distort them in order to hold to the idea that somehow naturalistic evolutionism is how God created the earth and the heavens and the cosmos. But they have to mangle those verses. Jesus said it this way, if you do not believe what it, he said concerning the material realm, he says, how can you believe him on what he says about the spiritual? This is John 4, 12. He says, <clears throat> If I've told you about earthly things and you believe me not, how are you going to believe me when I speak of the spiritual things? And you know there is a marked, marked, marked line from the acceptance of evolution to the drop in evangelistic success. Because if you don't believe that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, you don't believe him about anything else that he has to say. Richard Dawkins is plain on that. But, 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 couldn't 
God just have got the evolutionary ball rolling like uh, making a snowball for building a snowman and, and just tweak the evolutionary process along the way? This is the idea of theistic evolution. This is the idea of progressive creation, day-age theories, etc., but these do nothing but impose foreign, unbelieving ideas onto and into the plain teachings of the Bible. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. There's, there's another way of saying nothing evolved. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God not by evolutionary process not by natural processes. Not only is God as creator central to scriptural integrity but secondly the fact that God created as he revealed is central to sound scriptural reasoning. What do we mean by reason or reasonable? Well, basically, it's the idea of plain sensibility. It's realistic. It is um, commonsensical. When it comes to our origins, it's either God or chance. That's the choice. It's either God or coincidence. That's your choice. What happens when we replace the Creator with chance? and philosophy and naturalism? Well, the late Professor William Provine of Cornell University stated it this way. The implications of modern science, which is naturalistic evolutionism, are clearly inconsistent with most religion traditions. Why? Because science establishes, he goes on to say, no inherent moral or ethical laws exist. Nor are there absolute guiding principles for any human society. The universe cares nothing for us. And we have no ultimate meaning in life. And this is the kind of things that are being taught to our young people in the universities. This is Cornell. But they're saying the same thing in Harvard. They say the same thing in Harvard. They say it in Princeton. They say it in Princeton. They say it in uh, Yale. Yale, Philadelphia uh, University. We can go right on around the world. It's the same, same message, okay? I was engaging an evolutionist at one point. And he says, yeah, but he says, you can't argue with the fact that every scientist believes this. I said, well, here's the problem. It's herd mentality. I said, when you have a herd of cattle and they all come and feed at the same trough, guess what? All their burps smell the same. <laughs> When one takes God the Creator out of the picture, it eliminates the basis for consistent moral conduct or absolute guiding principles for a society. Paul warns us in Colossians 2.8 
Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Let me give you a more explicit translation of that. Think carefully. Do not be taken captive by deceptive arguments that are empty of revealed truth that come down from the dictums of men according to their material ideas or materialistic ideas of the universe and not after Christ. Philosophy uncoupled from God is error. And that's why Paul reminds us here that he's not saying that philosophy is not good. He's saying beware of the philosophy of an ungodly world. Big difference, okay? Big difference. Christian philosophy, very sound. Theology could be considered Christian philosophy, all right? Philosophy just simply comes from two Greek words, Philo, love, and Sophia, which is wisdom, a lover of wisdom. And one of the things that God tells us in Proverbs is that we should be lovers of wisdom. The, 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 the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom is God. So there's nothing wrong with good godly wisdom or philosophy. It's the philosophy of an ungodly world that we need to be aware of. Too many folks have been taken captive by the atheistic, naturalistic, material ideas, material elemental ideas of our day. Case in point, Scopes trial, along with the trial of Loeb and Leopold, two individuals. We go back to 1925. The Scopes trial took place in Dayton, Tennessee. A teacher, John Scopes, was set up and accused of teaching that man evolved from monkeys, which was illegal in Tennessee at the time. This trial became known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, and reporters literally poured to that little town in Dayton, Tennessee, from all over the country, not only just all over the country, but all over the Western world. The place was flooded with people. The lawyers were Clarence Darrow for the defense and William Jennings, Jennings Bryan for a state prosecution. During the trial, W.J. Bryan, William Jennings Bryan, the Christian, for the state, made this observation. He said this, Darwin, Darwinian teaching would give our children a doctrine that refutes not only their belief in God, but their belief in a savior and takes from them every moral standard that the Bible gives us. That's a great statement. And he went on to back it up with an interesting illustration. <coughs> he brought out the fact that just a few months prior to the Scopes trial, Darrow defended two young men, Loeb and Leopold. Loeb and Leopold murdered a young boy. The reason? 
was simply this. Loeb and Leopold were college students. They were learning the dogmatism of atheistic naturalism. There is no God, there is no morality, there's no right and wrong, but evolution is the driving force to make things better. And we, we want to make everything better, and, and we, have, we see our human element being held back by inferior genes by inferior people and that if we want our progress to go forward we need to make sure that people get involved with people with good genes well Loeb and Leopold took this teaching to heart started to process it through their minds and so they saw this young man struggling because he had autism was a little bit backwards. So, they felt that they were doing evolution a favor by murdering this young boy. This is what Darrow said. Brian pointed out that Darrow was able to avoid the death penalty for the defendants by arguing that Loeb and Leopold's horrendous criminal actions were the result of the evolution-based philosophy they learned at university. <clears throat> Darrow realized the moral connection and made the appeal according to the judge, accordingly to the judge. Scripture says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's why we have to guard our hearts. Guard our heart with all diligence, for out of it come the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 9.10 Loeb and Leotold were defiled of any of these sound biblical principles, and because of it, because of not having sound biblical principles driving their thinking, three lives were wasted. Leopold's, Loeb's, and the poor young man that was murdered. Fast forward seven decades, Columbine High School, we all remember. In April 1999, two high school boys entered the school, murdering and maiming fellow students and teachers, driven by their evolutionary-based thinking. One of the boys, Harris, wore, deliberately, wore a t-shirt with the words, natural selection, written on it. Other Darwinian statements were found in his diary. It was expressed on his Facebook account or his social media account of the time. All kinds of... Darwinian ideas and ideas about evolution and how evolution has to, for the human race, has got to be more pure and all those kinds of things. It was all radical statements. Over a dozen precious lives were wasted because of the logical consequences brought about by the notion of naturalistic evolutionism and the effect it had on two young minds. Jesus' words recorded in Luke summarize our point. He says this in Luke 6.45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. 
What's in the heart comes out in the actions. That's why Jesus said, guard your heart. The proverb has said, guard your heart. Because that's where life takes place. Not only the effect that God the Creator is central to Scripture, integrity, and the sound reason, but we see, thirdly, the fact that God created as He revealed is central to the Gospel. And we start this section thinking in terms of this question and the answer. Which Adam can we eliminate? The first or the last? Luke 3.38, if you turn there in your scriptures. Luke 3.38. We'll pick it up in verse 37 and read this. Which was the son of Methuselah, which was the son of Enoch. Here Luke is giving the genealogies. And he, interesting, under the divine authorship of the Holy Spirit, he gives these genealogies in a backward format. And guess what? Which was the son of Methuselah, which was the son of Enoch, which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Mahiel, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of Neanderthal man, which was the son of uh, uh, Cro-Magnon man, was the son of uh, Australopithecus Afrikanus. Is that there? Now, there are no transitional forms or genealogical connections between Adam and God. And I believe God put that there for a reason, for this very reason, to emphasize the fact that Adam was the direct product of God, not any kind of natural processes. No natural processes involved. Those other things are not there because they're not the truth. Luke ties Adam's direct relationship back to God the Creator. Romans 5.12 Turn with me there. Romans 5.12. And we'll bring this to a close. Acts 5.12. I'm sorry. Romans 5.12. In chapter 5 and verse 12 it says, Wherefore... As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had no, not sinned after similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him that was to come. But as, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, but as the gift for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. And we conclude with um, verse 21. 
For as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. Back and shift our focus. We got the context. Let's focus on verse 12. Verse 12, the very first statement there is very crucial. By one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. The Greek word for world there is cosmos. That is the universe. That is the idea of the whole created realm. And this is crucial because the theistic evolutionists and the old earth creationists try to say that death was part of God's original creation. And this verse, when you understand it properly, tells us absolutely the opposite. It says, by one man's sin, death entered the cosmos. That means there was no death before sin. The idea of death is a product, the end result of sin. No sin, no death. Sin, death. When God pronounced his creation very good at the end of Genesis chapter 1, there was no death because there was not sin yet. No death anywhere because there was no sin at that point. That's a very crucial point to understand in this verse right here. The divine writer Paul ends this verse by saying, death passed upon all men because all men have sinned. But the curse is the imp imposition of death into the rest of creation because God, it just wasn't logical and it wasn't right for a fallen creature to live in an unfallen world. That had to match. There had to be balance. So the curse came on all creation due to Adam's sin and it was the curse from Adam's sin that brought the death not only onto Adam himself and his posterity but also into the creation realm itself, into that cosmos. That's what Romans 5.12, the very first phrase, means. The Bible reveals the origin of death that came because of Adam's sin. The wages of sin is death. No sin, no death. Evolutionist Richard Bozarth understood this, and he summed up the whole controversy with these words. Christianity has fought, still fights, and will continue to fight science to the desperate end over evolution because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason of Jesus' earthly life and was supposedly made necessary. Destroyed Adam and Eve and original sin, and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. This is what's taught in our universities. This is why trying to marry naturalistic evolution with Christian messages is useless to do. Those that try to do so are called theistic evolutionists. It solves none of the objections between evolution and the Bible. Theistic evolution turns scripture on its head by calling that which is evil, death, good, and that which is good, God and his creative works, as bad. 
Theistic evolution skews the gospel, calling into question why Christ even had to die, since death, disease, and bloodshed are all part of God's creative plan, as far as the TEs are concerned. It turns everything up and around on its head. So the fact that God created as revealed is central to sound scriptural doctrine, it's central to the Bible's integrity, and it is central to sound reason produced by the scripture, and it is definitely central to the gospel itself. When one dot denies the literal, that is the normal Genesis account of origins, you rip the foundation out from under the rest of the Bible. There is a reason that Genesis is the first book of the Bible and that creation account is the very first revelation from God to man. You take God's account of creation in real space and time and say it didn't happen, Genesis account is not accurate, it's not legitimate when you say that we can't understand it because it was written so long ago that we really can't appreciate what the writer meant by the words he used. All we do is scramble the scriptural message and turn it on its head. This is a serious assault. It loosens the scripture up from reality and divorces Christianity, biblical Christianity, and this gospel from legitimacy. This is severe. This is what evolution loves to do. It loves to do as John MacArthur coined, ungod, God. It loves to strip scripture of its veracity. It rejects God as the supernatural creator, as the lawgiver, as the judge and the savior. It destroys the dignity of man created in the image of God. They don't get it, but they literally have allowed Satan to make a monkey out of them. This is why God is to be seen as the creator. That's why it's so important. That's why it's right there first message of the scriptures it's central to scriptural integrity central to the sound reasoning and it is central to the gospel if you don't believe the book of Genesis you don't believe the Bible whether the universe was created by God or snowballed into existence by random chance has been debated for a long time but the debate comes down to this either you believe the Bible or you do not if you really don't believe the Genesis creation account as plainly written, then what do you believe? The scriptures from the Jewish perspective is known as the law. All of it. Genesis to Revelation. They see that as the law. James says this very interesting statement. He says, if you're going to follow the law, you're bound to all of the law. And if you break one commandment, one law, you become guilty of all the law. So it is all or nothing as far as God is concerned. So you either believe the Bible or you don't. You can't have a smorgasbord I don't believe this as it's written, but I believe this. I'm not so sure about this, but I believe this. Uh-uh. It is all or nothing. That's the way God put it. That's the way God has it. That's the way God intended it. I have studied all through this, and one of the things that came up to the surface was this. God expects his people to follow his word explicitly. 
every time they don't, every time they change what God says, even just a little bit, they wind up in big trouble. Adam and Eve. Oh, we just, we just shouldn't even touch it. They believed the devil. Yea, hath God said? He didn't mean really that you die. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, that makes sense. And they've got in trouble. Saul. Supposed to wait to make the sacrifice. Samuel said he'd be there. Samuel ran late. The word of God says the king cannot enter into the priest office and the priest office can't enter into the king office. Saul takes on the mantle of the priest and offers a sacrifice. He lost his kingdom. He didn't follow God's word explicitly. And we can give other illustrations, but I think you get the idea. We remember... What we believe God said in his word will be accounted for at the judgment seat of Christ or sadly at the unbeliever's white throne judgment. This includes what God has said in Genesis. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are the supernatural creator and has created exactly, explicitly how you have said you've created in your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, and that, Lord, we simply should take you at your word and follow it according to what you say and understand it according to how you intended it to be understood. And we'll give thee praise for what's accomplished. We thank you for each one that was here tonight. We thank you for each one that has come out to all the services that we had this weekend. We pray, Lord, that your messages would find a seed, a seeding and a workable understanding in many, many hearts. And help us to be equipped that, Lord, we might be better ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us to those that ask us. And we'll give thee thanks now for and ask your blessing upon this great church. In Jesus' name, amen. You, Pastor? All right, let's take our head books. Hope you got, did you get those five things from Genesis 1? Um, all right, time, force, action, space, matter. That's, that was great, that's great. That's, a, that's what the Bible is all about. Um, I never heard that before. So see that even an old doctor like me can learn new things. I have to praise the Lord for that. Yes, I mean that's. I'm not doing my job unless I'm teaching you something. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Let's stay. And that's why I get guys in, right? So I can sit there and so I can learn. But you know, without without creation, there's no salvation. We took a course. um, In fact, it was one of my favorite courses in Bible college. It was on Genesis one through eleven. Mm. And it was, I don't remember what it was called, but it was, it was basically, it's foundation. Mm-hmm. We basically have the seed of every doctrine of scripture in those 11 yep. verses. And uh, just recently, my son was sitting in a class up at what used to be practical, and he was told by the professor that Genesis 3.15 it has nothing to say about a redeemer or salvation. He said, what, what should I do, Dad? I said, you get, out, get out of that class as fast as you can. Yeah. But that's that's what they're doing now. We're, that verse has always been the seed of... Yep. When anybody starts talking about prophecy of salvation, that's when they go. That's right. Yeah, just, anyway, 
427. We need to be convinced that the message that we're preaching is the truth. Like Paul said, this is the true God and eternal life. So let's just sing verse number one. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Verse number one.